Good morning, everybody, and this is Dr. Jason Profeto from a Serendipitous Logic podcast. I am very fortunate this morning to have with me Dr. Louis Francescuti, who is a physician from Alberta, who I'm going to be introducing shortly. And this is a podcast that's going to be a bit more dedicated to discussion around um, healthcare reform in Canada and Ontario, as well as a concept of accountability and what it actually means. And I'm very, I'm very happy and looking forward to a, a conversation with uh, Louis, who's uh, sitting across from me on Skype. Louis, did you want to say hi and introduce yourself? No, Jason, I'm uh, glad we have a chance to follow up on your email and see if we can have a little bit of a discussion that uh, at the end of the day, will better the care that patients are receiving if they need to receive care in the first place. In other words, let's try and get rid of as many patients as we can by making them healthy first. And the ones that do get ill, let's take care of them in a timely fashion. Awesome. And so just uh, some background for the actual listeners. You are a physician, you work in Alberta, and you are uh, an emergency physician by training as well. Is that right, Louis? Well, uh, I had an eclectic start to my career. I, I did a combined MD-PhD, PhD in immunology. I was interested in bone marrow transplantation. And then I got uh, taken by general surgery. So I did three, four years of general surgery and decided that I'd seen enough trauma. So I went to Johns Hopkins to train to be a preventative medicine physician and came back. And I'm now a professor in the School of Public Health and an emergency physician in one of the busiest emergency departments in Canada. No kidding. That's awesome. Okay. So I, I think what initially is sort of catalyzed our interaction, uh, especially with my email to you, was mm-hmm. sort of this um, post that was put up by the Canadian Medical Association. Did, did you just want to sort of clarify y- your views in that post? And I know that you had spoken about it previously in previous years to different crowds, just because I, I think that a lot of people were taken aback a little bit and a lot of physician, physicians were, if I'm allowed to say so, even um, a, a bit insulted by, by some of the words and perhaps insinuation. So I, I really wanted to give you a chance to clarify your views and what you were sort of saying about uh, physician accountability. Well, I was asked to write my opinion on professionalism and where we need to go. And so in the past, I've spoken about meaningful accountability. And in 800 words, which is you know quite difficult to do, I tried to synthesize what I felt uh, an opportunity presented itself for physicians uh, to move forward on. Now, it's funny because that same message has been given many times previously, and it's never generated much interest. Um, actually, it was ignored. And so it, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Gandhi when Gandhi tried to do some things. Not that I'm comparing myself to Gandhi, but he said, you know, any kind of big social change will initially be ignored. Uh, then you'll be laughed at. And then you're angry. People will be angry at you. And then people will actually start a discussion and hopefully you're able to move an agenda forward. So when you take a look at how physicians are perceived in the eye of the public, from 2003 to 2013, an Ipsos Reid poll showed that in just about every category measured, uh, the Canadian public is not as happy with physicians as they were like 10 years ago. And even then, they weren't all that happy. So this is very puzzling for physicians because a recent study from the States shows us that just about every specialty, they're approaching about 50% burnout for the majority of them, at least in the States. I haven't seen Canadian figures. And so when you come up with an idea that may be a little radical, 
and that was actually the first line of the blog was, uh, this might be a radical idea, but how can we introduce greater accountability into a system so that physicians actually feel more engaged, more empowered, more like they're doing what they were trained to do with a greater satisfaction and greater patient satisfaction. And so, you know, I asked myself a few years ago, is this even possible to suggest such a, a crazy idea? And so I started looking around and people were telling me, well, there are places like that in the States, Intermountain, Kaiser Permanente, Cleveland Clinic. And so I said, well, if that's true, then I'd, I'd love to visit one of these facilities. And around the same time, James Merlino, the chief experience officer at the Cleveland Clinic, did a presentation at a conference I was at, and I was taken aback by this gentleman and what his mission was. He was a general surgeon, and he was in charge at the Cleveland Clinic of making sure that every patient that went through there um, experienced something that was very unique. So the Cleveland Clinic, a non-for-profit organization in Cleveland, basically came up with this idea probably about 100 years ago, so it's taken a long time for them to develop this. But the physicians that work there are really part and parcel of the system. There's over 4,000 physicians, as far as I know, from primary care to quaternary care. And they work on the basis of putting the patient at the very center and focusing on quality from the moment the patient interacts with the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that place is so different that any physician can phone the Cleveland Clinic before 2 and be seen by a specialist that very same day. Now, one of the things that really took me aback and others that visited it was that they had their physicians salaried. They paid them very good salaries, um, you know, in accordance to people that don't work at the Cleveland Clinic. But they were also on one-year contracts, and their performance was measured quarterly by their peers, and it was a physician-led, it was a physician-led model. And what they found was that very few physicians uh, are asked to leave or very few physicians quit. And for everyone that leaves, there's about another 30 or 40 that want to work there. So I said to myself, how the heck can they get physicians to A, accept being on salary, B, accept to be on a one-year contract, and to have their system measure, and to, to have their performance measured? And it became apparent that the systems they work in are designed to improve the quality of care continuously. They have data systems that are able to give information back to physicians in a timely fashion so that physicians know if they're practicing well or can they improve or can they learn from their errors. And so I looked at that and I said, well, maybe that's something we should at least start the discussion in Canada about. And when I started the discussion, it's funny, there's two different camps. There's some that emotionally will recoil to the idea of being salaried and having somebody monitor your practice so closely. And there's others that say the time is due. And this recent uh, you know, uproar that we're going through right now, I've had a lot of emails from residents and medical students that have said, you know, if we can develop a system similar to the Cleveland Clinic, uh, we'd be prepared to work in a system like that that respected us. But the one thing I learned at the Cleveland Clinic, too, is that you just don't accept accountability unless you also have the authority and the responsibility to make a difference. And maybe that's why a lot of physicians are upset when you suggest that physicians should be more accountable, because you, you can't accept accountability for something unless you also have the authority and the responsibility 
to affect the change. So that's that's sort of a, a little bit of the background of what I've written about previously. That's generated absolutely no interest. But maybe in trying to whittle it down to 800 words, I chose the wrong 800 words. Nonetheless, we'll use it as an opportunity to have a discussion. And if somebody else in 800 words can present their case, maybe the next time we'll go up to 1,000 and then we'll, we'll collectively write a white paper and, uh, you know, make Sir William Osler very proud of us because I once did a, uh, a talk saying, well, what would uh, Willie, as I called him, think of us today? And uh, I think he would be kind of happy but not really as happy as he could be because he would say, man, when I did medicine, I really didn't have much to work with. Look what you guys have to work with and gals have to work with. And uh, you really could be doing more. So the thing that scared me the most was, and then I'll, uh, I'll stop, the thing that scared me the most was when the governor general at the 2014 convocation of the Royal College pretty well warned us. And he warned us exactly what was happening right now in Ontario and Quebec and New Brunswick and other places, that society is wondering whether we're living up to our end of the deal and society's about to rewrite that social contract we have with them. And if that's the case, then I think physicians, you know, should be leading this change. And if we don't think the healthcare system's working, then what we need to do is make some suggestions as to how we can improve it and be the first to say, look, we're not afraid to be accountable. Now, having said all that, that's in the context of physician burnout, and uh, provinces that are going through negotiations right now that uh, are not the most pleasant. And so maybe this was just the lightning rod that caught their attention, and we'll use it as an opportunity. So I think that's actually really helpful to hear you um, clarify your points and actually elaborate a little bit too. I think 800 words is ambitious. I would have been a little bit more impressed if you had done it in 140 characters on Twitter. But, well, uh, see, the, the trouble with tr- Twitter is Twitter, Twitter gives you, it's like a, a hit of something. It gives you that instant relief that you got it off your chest, but it could be misinterpreted in so many different ways. And uh, so you got to be really careful with Twitter. It's powerful, but it's also very dangerous. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, you, you say a lot of interesting things. I, I think there's a lot more that you and I and probably a lot of physicians agree on than disagree on. And I want to just sort of tease out a few of these points because I think there's a there's some very important principle discussions here. So the, the first one, and a, lo- a lot of my colleagues too, especially from the Concerned Ontario Doctors Group, had, had, had stimulated some questions uh, a- after you had, had posted this, uh, or after the CMA had posted this uh, article. And one of them was, when we look at performance measures for physicians, what does that actually mean? You know, And, and I think this is, we, we say it very superficially, but it can go deeper into so many levels. And there's this whole context now about uh, patient satisfaction and whether or not that's an important uh, paramount uh, um, performance metric to sort of guide healthcare change and what's going to be happening with physicians. And allow me to linger on that point for a second, because I, I've had my own reservations about using patient satisfaction as a as, as a, a very strong measure and predictor of where healthcare should go. I think it's very important to get patients involved and to collaborate very, in a very collegial and congenial way. But as as a, a pure metric, I, I'm not sure that's the best best way to improve healthcare outcomes. And and in the JAMA. 
series there. And I think, I believe it was 2012 or 2013. There was a, a study released where they looked at patient satisfaction as a performance metric and what it does to healthcare costs. And they actually showed that it increased rates of healthcare expenditure and drugs, and even in some cases increased mortality. So when you say, um, one year renewable, depending on performance metrics, I don't. I don't mean to paraphrase you too much there, but uh, what what do you mean by that? What do you think we should go? Where do you you think we should go with that? Well, it really doesn't matter what I mean. What really matters is does it work? And um, you got to be really careful now because we're comparing apples with oranges. Uh, I don't think there's any system in Canada that performs anywhere near the Cleveland Clinic. So this idea of trying to take what Cleveland Clinic is doing and doing so successfully and transplanting it into Canada, uh, A, would not work right now. It simply wouldn't work because the systems that we work in are not sophisticated enough to be able to measure uh, our quantity of work. So how much work are you actually doing? So how many patients are you actually seeing? The quality of the work, and quality, as you know, can be measured in many different ways. You can take a look at adherence to uh, practice guidelines. You can take a look at outcomes, actual outcomes. You can take a look in various disciplines in, you know, infectivity rates, readmission rates, you know, resurgery rates, um, misinterpretations of x-rays, misinterpretations of lab results. The list goes on. And patient satisfaction, you're absolutely correct. I mean, if you go to uh, rate my MD and look up mine, it was friends of mine that thought it was a joke to go in there and, and write some terrible reviews. And they told me. But they said, oh, no problem. We'll go in now and write some great reviews about you. So, I mean, that's not the kind of stuff we're looking at. But we're talking about the J.D. Power kind of measurement, where J.D. Power, very, very successful organization that measures performance within organizations, will go in and actually measure performance. Now, there are some patients that no matter what you do, you're never going to satisfy them, and they will complain. We all know they're there. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're there for a variety of reasons. But there are metrics in place right now that are able to allow us to know how we're performing. The problem is within the Canadian system, there's not too many places that I know that are able to collect that information and provide it back to you, not in a punitive or a threatening way, because the Cleveland Clinic and these other places realize that it's hard to find great physicians and they want to keep their physicians. And that's why they spend so much time emphasizing communication within these organizations. These organizations have departments that actually help physicians and help staff communicate with each other. Health communication, very important field. So your question of can we measure it? Absolutely. Is the Canadian system ready to measure it? Absolutely not. And that's the last thing I would quit before I would take a one-year contract in Canada. But I would definitely be at the table if a government came to me and said, Doc, we'd like to give you the accountability, but we're also going to give you the authority and the responsibility to make decisions so that you can deliver the absolute best possible care you can for your patient. And if you can actually make your patient so healthy that they don't even become a patient, we would be even happier. And that's the social determinants of health that we never talk about. Just remember, Jason, three risk factors, smoking, inactivity, and poor nutrition contribute to four major diseases, certain cancers, chronic uh, cardiovascular illness, chronic pulmonary conditions, and uh, what's the other one? I think it's um, diabetes. Hmm. And those four conditions 
account for 50% of the disease burden. So 50% of what you and I and our colleagues are taking care of, in theory, is totally preventable. And if we were to start sort of providing leadership and saying, well, let, let's go one step further. And if we were to take some of these resources that are being used in acute care and redirect them towards better home care, Denmark's shown us that if you put 1.4% of GDP, 1.6% of GDP towards aging in the home versus what Canada does is 0.4%, Denmark provides 20 hours of home care a day for folks that need it in the home. We may provide four. Denmark has not opened a long-term care bed, and they're actually closing acute care beds. So there's a lot of stuff we can do, but we need to step up outside our comfort zone and say, listen, okay, so he proposes this one-year, you know, contract thing on salary. It works at the Cleveland Clinic, but they've been working at it for 100 years. How can we start letting the public know and letting government know that we're not afraid to be accountable. That's that's how we're trained, right? But that's, then, yeah. So that's, that, that's a good point. So let me let me use that as a segue because I, I want to round back to something and then move forward a little bit too. And I think we we use the word uh, punitive at one point, and, and we don't want to make these punitive measures or reviews. I, I think therein lies a little bit of an irony, right? Because the way a lot of physicians will look at this is that I, I have a yearly contract. And, and, and granted, I mean, I, I, I completely see what you're saying about not being able to transplant it into Canada at this moment. But if there's a yearly contract and, and it's based upon performance metrics, I mean, what does that mean if I don't meet the performance metrics? And and I think intuitively a lot of people interpret that as a, as a punitive measure or a punitive monitoring system. And I think where, where I am right now in patient advocacy is that one of the best things for patients is actually healthy and productive physicians. So I look at a healthcare system, I look at healthcare reform, first and foremost with patients at the center. But I mean, patients can only stay healthy at the center is if we have a very, very good healthcare system and physician population amongst all our allied healthcare professionals as well that are good, that are ready to go, that are actually healthy mentally, socially, and, and physically, and that they're actually being taken care of. So I, I have some concerns and reservations too when I see these yearly renewable contracts, but I, I, I do concede, I, I get that. I, I think if we can map it so that it's not a punitive measure. That's a very, very important thing. And I think where I want to move a little bit now it was when we speak about accountability and, and perhaps you've heard of my analogy with the three-legged stool, I think the, con- the conversation about accountability has to be had in conjunction with not only physicians, because physicians absolutely should be accountable, but with patients and with the system as well. And I think it's very difficult to ignore these two other parts of the stool while only focusing on physicians. And I also think that it should not necessarily be a, a finger-pointing game, but, and again, I, I use these words, a, a, a collegial and collaborative effort amongst us. And I think I, I, was, I was being interviewed by the Medical Post, and he was saying to me, the, the interviewer was saying to me, uh, you know, don't you think physicians should be stepping up? And I said, absolutely, physicians should be stepping up, and physicians are stepping up. Specifically in Ontario, we have the Concerned Ontario Doctors Group, we have a public forum that's called um, We Are Your Ontario Doctors. That's a way for patients to communicate with the physicians. 
And I don't think you need to go much further than just, for example, these grassroots efforts to really see how much physicians are really doing and, and how much advocacy and how much, a, you know, um, political clout we're starting to build by, by negotiating and speaking with our government and, and trying to push things forward to better, better patients. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, this, this trifecta of accountability with physicians, patients, and the actual system itself, the, the Ministry of Health or the government? No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you can't lay the blame on any one uh, subsection of the care system. But as physicians, we've always been leaders. And I think the importance is that we have an opportunity as this chaos is rolling out across the country, and it is. There's no health region that I know of that's working as well as it could to provide the leadership that's required. So it's 2016. Um, we have access to systems that work around the world. What we need to do is bring those and almost demand that those be looked at in a realistic way and that we have a big role to play. Back in 1995 in Alberta when Ralph Klein and uh, colleagues were redesigning the healthcare system, they totally excluded physicians from it because they thought that we were the problem. And so what ended up happening is that we're still paying the consequences and physicians are very disengaged. Physicians want to be engaged. That's why we went into medicine. We didn't spend 10 to 15 years training to be left on the sidelines. Things aren't working right now. So what we need to do is step up and say, hey, listen, we're prepared to enter into a discussion that will talk about greater accountability. Um, the Alberta Medical Association, a week or two ago, held a conference talking about physicians as stewards, and they laid out all the facts, how much physicians are paid, uh, how much physicians are performing, uh, what services are being provided in comparison to others, and, and they're prepared to negotiate with the government and say, hey, we want to play a greater role, we want to be more accountable, but we want to have a say in how things can change as well. So you're right, governments have to play a role but put yourself in a government situation. 40 to 50% of your budget is going towards this care system that uh, when you take a look at it internationally, it's not really performing all that well. When you take a look at the subsections within it, it's not really performing that well. Yet you're spending billions of dollars. As a matter of fact, in Canada, it's the tune of about 225 to $230 billion each and every year. The last time we went with an accord to the federal government, the promise was, give us more money, we'll make it better. Well, they gave a lot of money, and the system did not get better. What I'm saying is it's time for physicians to shine by standing up, not complaining, not whining, but thinking very differently. And collectively, let's propose models that will address patient safety, will address patient satisfaction, will address provider satisfaction, and will be good stewards of the resources that are actually limited. You know, $225 billion is a lot of money. The Institute of Medicine in the States, when they looked at the U.S. system, showed that 35% of that was totally wasted. 35%. Even if we're better than that at 10% in Canada, that's about $20 billion a year that's wasted. That if we were to direct towards early child development and reducing adverse child events very early on that we know have an impact on people's health. That if it's looking at a different model of primary care so that absolutely every Canadian would have access to a primary care provider 24-7 pretty well. And that we assemble teams together that have different skill sets that can meet the needs 
of the patients 24-7 because disease knows no time limits. And then we start measuring and showing that we can make a population healthier with less burnout and more satisfaction amongst our physicians at a reduced cost. That's what we should be aiming for. But I don't hear politicians talking like that. I don't hear hospital administrators talking like that. As a matter of fact, I don't hear too many physicians talking like that. And I don't hear too many patients talking like that. So the three legs of your stool uh, may be three legs of a stool, but nobody's talking the same language right now. So, and I, I agree. I actually agree on those points. And, and if you if you look at Choosing Wisely Canada, for example, and the numbers they quote, they do say it's, you know, 30, 35 percent of, of um, health care resources are either uh, wasted or used unnecessarily and do not help. So one in three things that we do do not help in uh, decision, medical decision making or clinical decision making that would actually help a, a patient move forward. And even when you when you really start to look at the, the patient demographics and what's happening, um, 30% of our healthcare spending is on the hospitals and there's, there's, there's tons of unnecessary tests and, and administrative layers, bureaucratic layers, bureaucratic mazes, as, as I like to say. And then 1% of the users, 1% of our users, our, our patients, and you know, some, sometimes it's quoted as the super utilizers of the system are using anywhere from thirty to fifty percent of our actual healthcare resources. Now, choosing wisely, though, is is very, a very very interesting initiative. And I'm actually hosting a conference uh, in May at uh, through McMaster University in the Hamilton Academy of Medicine, and the theme is choosing wisely. But the difficulty is choosing wisely is a joint effort between physicians and patients, right? And Again, we, 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 we still struggle to stay afloat because this, this government, and when I say this government, I'm, gonna, I'm going to refer to our provincial government, is actually very difficult to advance and, and move forward with because they are lacking accountability right now. And they, they've made major unilateral slashes and cuts to our system. They have not been open to binding arbitration. We have no physician services agreement in place right now. And so you see all these great initiatives like Choosing Wisely Canada, the Concerned Ontario Doctors, all this advocacy. We have tons of patients on, you know, we are your Ontario doctors. And then we keep hitting this wall with our provincial government. Again, lack of binding arbitration and, and other things as well. What, what is the next step there when, you know, perhaps we can argue that two out of the three legs of the stool are start, starting to be much more engaged in accountability, whereas the third one isn't. And, and I say this with full awareness and appreciation of fiscal challenges, but at the same time in Ontario anyway, we, we are squandering billions of dollars to scandals and inappropriate use of provincial budget. Yeah, I mean, I'm wise and the gray hairs that I have left, you know, attest to the fact that uh, all politics is local and I don't know enough about the Ontario scene to um, to make any comments other than uh, I sense that physicians are, are rather angry in the province. So the best thing that we can do is actually take a look at, as I said earlier, what works and try and emulate it. And maybe we have to do it by you know, medical school, maybe we have to do it by region, maybe we have to do it by institution, but we're going to have to come up with some solutions that meet everyone's needs at the end of the day. And it's going to be difficult to do, but the good news is, you know, in, in, it's 2016, we have access to information that no physician has ever had access to before. And there's plenty of examples from around even Canada, innovative examples of physicians doing great things. 
We've got to take those and we've got to scale them up so that governments actually take a look at it and say, well, there is a better way to do this. And uh, I know that many different provinces are going to probably go through what Ontario's gone through and what Quebec's gone through. But um, it's ironic at a time when both Quebec and Ontario, Quebec especially, the uh, Prime Minister of Quebec is a neurosurgeon, Minister of Health is a physician, actually used to be you know, in charge of the specialist physicians, and most of the senior ministries are all run by physicians, and yet they're having issues. And in Ontario, as far as I know, your minister and your deputy minister are both physicians as well, and yet this impasse seems to exist. So we're going to have to serve the public's best interest by maybe calling a truce and sitting down and saying, look, what's the reality of the budget? What's our expectations of the profession? What's the profession's expectations of the government? And then mobilize, I think, the most powerful group out there that's not really been tapped into, and that's baby boomers. As a baby boomer, I can tell you, we're, we're pretty self-centered and we're pretty vested in our interests. And if you can tap into the discontent or the fears of the baby boomers and get them to be engaged and say, listen, we want everyone to up their game so that when it comes time for myself to use the service, because they're seeing how their parents are being treated, and a lot of them are not very happy what they're seeing in either end-of-life care or how their chronic conditions are being managed. You know, we've almost set ourselves up for a very difficult situation, Jason, because when Medicare was introduced in the uh, 60s, the average age was 27 or so. The average age now is 47. And so with 47 comes multiple chronic conditions, or the start of. And our systems are designed for acute care. Our systems are not designed for chronic care. I don't have to tell you this. So that's part of the problem is we've got a system that was designed for, you know, 50 years ago, that's not meeting our needs. So it's a system design issue. But more importantly, we have to find that collective will. You know, when you mention choosing wisely, I, I get emails on a regular basis from my engineer friends saying, thank goodness we've been choosing wisely. What the heck have you guys been doing up till now? Can you imagine if engineers, you know, hadn't been choosing wisely, building bridges or building planes or building stuff that can fall apart? Uh, the world would be a very different place. And what we can do is learn from other professions and how they've been doing things and doing them well. So I, I think choosing wisely is an admission that we have not done things well. And what we're trying to do right now is better them. But it's going to take a lot more than choosing wisely uh, to fix the system that's consuming an enormous amount of resources and is not producing the results that neither the public, the provider, or governments are expecting of it. And I, that, that's an interesting point too and I, I also think though I would add I, I think the the main goal of choosing wisely as well though is to have this better conversation about um, resource stewardship and healthcare utilization with patients right because we are using a lot of healthcare resources unnecessarily and if you look at the driving factor behind that and choosing wisely has done a little bit of research we've actually done a little bit of research as well it, it, it's actually very difficult for, for physicians that are trying to do the best for their patients when there's all these things like time pressure and medical legal concerns and these sorts of things as well so Choosing wisely is as much a academic and a resource discussion as it actually is a social phenomenon as well, I think. And I think it's very, very important for all stakeholders in this to actually step up and, and start to accept accountability and responsibility for the resources that we're actually using. 
I want I want to slowly transfer to another interesting topic too. Healthcare, so HQO, health, pardon me, Health Quality Ontario is supposed to be a quality assurance, a quality improvement branch in in our province that looks at different um, parameters of healthcare utilization, satisfaction, etc., and where we can improve. A recent study, and it was it was headed by Dr. Joshua Tepper, said that most patients feel that they cannot get access to their primary care physician within a reasonable time and specifically within one to two days. And only about 30-40% of patients said that if they needed an appointment within one to two days, they would be able to actually get um, that appointment and that access. And this this bothered me a little bit. And I think to, to generalize that across the actual province is unfair. I think it's too complex of a medical system. And this is when we started to do monthly audits in my own office. And we saw we, we were recording literally every phone call and every same day request or urgent request. And we, we are accommodating close to 90 plus percent of people that can come in and when you start to adjust those accommodations for things like unreasonable requests which I, I, I know I always get bitten for this a little bit but it does exist sometimes patients do make an unreasonable request or or if a patient can't come in at a specific time you know they can only come in at two o'clock in the afternoon and we have something available in the, mo- in the morning we start to see that these accommodation rates are, are 95 percent plus right and I, I think at the bottom of this is a lot of very, very hardworking docs, a lot of very, very hardworking administrative uh, assistants and secretaries and receptionists. And the vast majority of patients, too, can be very, very reasonable, especially if they're educated and, and we work with them as a team with, with patient-centeredness at, at, the, at the point of the horn. Now, my, my concern, though, is that when the ministry starts to put initiatives forward, they create these sound bites and, you know, 40% of people or less are getting same day access or urgent care access. And this is demoralizing to physicians because it, in a lot of ways it's inaccurate. And the, the, the bigger problem with that I have is that it, it's not, it is, it is in a way, the, the perception is that it is punitive and we're showing what we're doing wrong, but there's never really, okay, this is how we can do it. This is how everyone should be measuring your performance and not because we plan to renew or uh, or seize your contract, but because we want things to improve for you. And we as the system, the Ontario uh, Provincial Government, the Ministry of Health, this is how we're going to help you. So we are not seeing that right now in Ontario. Did you have thoughts or comments about self-governance? So physicians in smaller groups, family health organizations, family health teams, creating self-governance governance agreements where, you know, they will review in a very productive and optimistic way what they're doing, what's important, having patient partners as stakeholders in these discussions and moving forward that way. Have you, have you thought about that before? Have you, are you saying a similar thing that I've just said? Yeah, I recently wrote a blog that said exactly that. No, I'm serious. It's it's exactly what I'm saying is is give physicians and you know team members the authority, the accountability and the responsibility and then you'll see the change. So that in other words, Jason if if uh, your problem is patients want to be seen quicker and one of your staff members comes to you and says, uh, well, Jason, isn't it funny that Kaiser Permanente is able to do 70% of their patient-physician interactions over the Internet or by phone 
or by Skype or by Twitter. And you'd say, are you serious? And they'd say, yes. And you say, well, why don't we institute that? It'll give our patients greater satisfaction. And then you work out the details as to how you still bill, right? Part of the problem right now is the way the system's set up is unless you see the whites of the eyes, you can't bill, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of stuff is driven by billing. But Jason, you're absolutely right. I mean, you and I agree more than disagree. And you need to have that authority. You need to have the responsibility. And you need to have the accountability so that you don't even need a health quality council. Why do we need health quality councils across the country? We need them because somebody's not doing their job. If quality was delivered where the patient-physician interaction was taking place and it was measured there, you wouldn't need you wouldn't need these these this whole new industry of patient safety and accountability. And as a matter of fact, you could probably scale down your regulatory bodies because patients would be satisfied and there'd be less complaints as well. What we have is layer upon layer upon layer of evidence that the system's not working. So we've got Kaihai and a million other organizations out there measuring performance, but they're so far removed from where the action is that it's almost meaningless. What we have to do is give physicians and healthcare providers the tools to be able to measure quality on a day-by-day basis, hour-by-hour basis, so that quality, as Ford says, is job one. And if we do that, we'll improve satisfaction, reduce costs, and we don't need to have the layers of bureaucracy that you were mentioning earlier are costing us billions of dollars. You're absolutely correct. What I'm saying is let's have physicians lead the change. I mean, we've got a century of evidence of how Canadian physicians have done some fantastic things. Now the toughest one is the one that we haven't been trained to do. So we haven't been trained to have difficult conversations. We haven't been trained you know, in, in, in finances very well. All the things that medical school forgot to teach us are the things that we need when we get out there. How to work with a system that is strapped for cash and is looking for bright, innovative ideas. But I can tell you one thing. If I was to apply to medical school today, I would not get in. Because the caliber of the students getting in today is far more than the caliber that I ever was. But I work with these young men and women, and I know that if we can properly motivate them, they could be the future of the profession. The trouble is we've got four four different generations practicing right now that have very different views. And we're poisoning the minds of a lot of these young people by complaining all the time about these ministries and governments being bad people. I mean, there are people like you and I trying to do the best they can. So what we have to do is tone down the rhetoric, improve our listening skills, control our emotional intelligence, and have the conversations that are going to take us to where we need to go. I mean, a guy like you, you're a lot younger than me. you got many more years to put in. I don't have that many more years to put in. So I want to turn over something that I'm not embarrassed to turn over to you. And right now, I would be embarrassed to turn this over, Jason, and say, look, we made a real mess of this you know, try and fix it up as best you can. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad as, as we start to round off, and we're going to come to the final segment of, of this session, but I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm happy and content with a few things. I, I think that we've, we've demonstrated that a discussion like this can be actually extraordinarily productive. 
and also optimistic, right? I think there's a lot of areas that we converge and we come to uh, agreement on, on the direction we have to take. And, and at the same time, we concede very important points, right? We, we concede that physicians are extremely hard workers. Physicians are, are excellent healthcare leaders. And we also absolutely agree on the fact that patients come first and patient safety, patient advocacy are very, very big points. Um, I, I, I think that these sorts of discussions have to happen a little bit more often. I don't, I don't think we we need to be we cannot be scared to speak up and to speak out, and, and we need to do it in a way that is as positive as possible. And you say it doesn't come off like a, a complaint, and I, I think that's a little bit of a risk when we do start to speak up and speak out. Now, as as we come to a close, I'm not sure if you've been listening or if you have listened to, I know you're a busy guy, and my previous podcast, but a lot of these other guys and gals that I've interviewed, I like to do a rapid fire segment with them at the end. So I ask some, um, some pointed questions. Some of them are fun. Some of them are a little bit more complicated. I had some fun with uh, Dr. Sean Watley um, in the last one and, and some, of, some of the questions he tried to dodge, but I, I pushed him a little bit further. Um, so I'm going to do this with you. So the rule is this. You're, you're, you, you get about 10 questions. You're only allowed to pass on one. And, and you, can, you can be as creative as, as you wish. And um, try to keep can your... Can I reach out to a friend? <laughs> you're allowed to call one friend. They're not allowed to be a politician. It can be a patient or an actual doctor. Okay. okay. So rapid fire question number one. Is the province of Ontario going to get more snow this month? Yes. Actually, I think that's true. I think we're getting a little bit colder weather next week. Um, question number two, CMA. Were they right in taking down your actual post? You'll have to ask them. I don't speak for the CMA. I'm just a regular CMA member like you are, hopefully. Are you a CMA member? I am a CMA member. And actually, so I, I, I will comment here too because there's a lot of discussion about whether or not um, it was right for physicians to say um, that they did that, that they wanted to cancel their CMA membership, and I think the more important point here is, do we feel that the CMA is representing us as Canadian physicians? Are they advocating for physicians? Are they advocating for patients? And I think if the answer to that is yes, then absolutely we should be CMA members. And I think if the answer to that is no or dubious, then we should consider actually canceling our memberships. I currently am a CMA member. I have a phone call today with the CMA that we're going to chat about a few things. Question number three, should doctors generally speak up more in 2016 going into 2017? Well, only if they want to be slapped around. you got to be really careful. Nobody wants the truth. So the moment you tell the truth, you're, you're putting yourself out as a target. So if you've got thick skin, then do it. But I would not recommend it for a doctor that's got thin skin. So, so question number four, what is, what is it like to speak up and then to get a, a little bit of blowback, some, some friendly fire from colleagues? Well, you know what? I've always believed that if you're telling the truth, then you need to stand up for it. Um, if you're telling lies, then, you know, whatever will happen will happen. But if you firmly believe in something and you're telling the truth, it's not going to be easy. But if it's the right thing to do, um, you know, I'm buoyed by the emails I get uh, from, you know, colleagues across the country and from people, just regular people, sending emails saying, wow, took a lot of courage to say that, but uh, thanks for doing that. There's always going to be some physicians for whatever reason are going to be upset, and that's fine too. But Jason, you said it beautifully. You know, I didn't know you from a hole in the wall. 
people were telling me, you know, don't reply to the guy. It's just a setup. They're going to go after you. And I said, no, look, I'll send him an email. The guy's Italian. Can't be all that bad. And uh, we had we had a good conversation, right? Now, if we were to take this conversation and expand it by 10, by 20, by 30, you know, you want me to come to McMaster, I'll come down to McMaster and let's have a forum with the medical students. Let's see what medical students think about this. Then let's have a forum with politicians and then let's have a forum with the public. And then you know what? Let's be bold and invite all of them into the same room. And then let's have a discussion. We're going to get more answers than hiring consultants. You know, the days of hiring consultants are over. We know what needs to be done. Let's just go ahead and do it. So that's why I did this, because, you know, it's an opportunity to say, look, it's going to be a difficult conversation, but we're physicians for heaven's sake. If we can't have difficult conversations, who can? Well, uh, you've sparked a very interesting idea, almost like a a panel discussion about hot topics in in Canadian and and provincial medical politics and having that uh, hosting it at at certain uh, medical uh, medical schools or universities. I like that. I like that. I I may take you up on that, uh, Louis. Okay, moving forward, Leafs versus Oilers. Who's the better team? Do you like Connor McDavid? Well, Connor McDavid, it's unfortunate what happened to him, but... uh, both teams are terrible, but the good news is we're getting a new a new arena next year, so hopefully that'll buoy their spirits. Oh, no kidding. Um, do you think Ontario eventually is going to have binding arbitration between the provincial government and the Ontario Medical Association? You know, I hope what they have is the ability to sit down and say, look, let's really, like you said earlier, Jason, let's focus on the patient and what's in the best interest of the patient. And if they do that... Maybe maybe it'll be something different, but I don't like arbitration and I don't like disagreement simply because you end up with winners and losers. And uh, I don't think anybody should be a winner and loser in this argument. We've got to make it so that everybody comes out getting what they need to do their job so that patients are better served. You have visited McMaster University. You did speak at our medical school. What did you think of the campus? Did you like it? Is it comparable to U of A? Yeah, it's beautiful. It was a beautiful campus when I eventually found the room. <laughs> it's a little difficult to find, but I can tell you that the students that organized it uh, did a stellar job and just convinced me that it's not just U of A medical students that are brilliant, but it's medical students across this country are just brilliant, and we need to tap into them, and we need to encourage them that, A, there's going to be jobs for them, and that they're going to be able to practice to their fullest capacity in an environment that will give them satisfaction so that 50% of them are not going to be burnt out like the 50% of us practicing right now that are burnt out. I'm going to be politically incorrect and cross a line here. Did you vote for the Liberals or Conservatives in the federal election? I always vote Green. (laughs) Um, Two more questions. Second last is, um, are you supportive of the Concerned Ontario Doctors Initiative, what we're doing? We are your Ontario doctors. Do you think that's a good idea, patient advocacy, physician advocacy? Well, uh, as you know, a professor who teaches advocacy, I'll tell you, you're, you're good advocates because you get your message across. I don't know what your message is. I haven't visited your website. I just know a heck of a lot of you tweet and are very effective in tweeting. And so you're, you're good advocates. Uh, I don't know what you're advocating for. And uh, I didn't take the time. I didn't want to be biased. But uh, no, in terms of advocates, you're good advocates. In terms of what you're advocating for, I don't know what you're advocating for. Maybe that's our next podcast. And the last question for you is, um, you can see through our Skype that I also have a beard. I see that you have a beard. 
I, I, the intention for me growing a beard is so that I can look a little bit more similar to someone like Socrates or Hippocrates or Plato and, and call myself a self-proclaimed philosopher. Um, for you, what was your motivation to grow a beard? I've always had a beard. Always. Do you feel more philosophical? I dare, I dare you to find a picture of me without a beard. There's only one. <laughs> All right. That's, and so as we conclude, I, I actually really just want to take a moment to thank you, Dr. Francescuti, for actually um, indulging the conversation, talking about accountability and allowing us to actually converge on a lot of ideas that um, we had and potentially some uh, disagreements as well. And I hope and I'm going to look into this actually is, is hosting a bit of a panel discussion, maybe a little bit of a debate too on, on you know, uh, medical politics and advocacy, accountability and where we're heading in this country. Did you have any final closing words that you wanted to say to our listeners? Yeah, if you're going to do that, make sure it's not politically correct. So in other words, you're going to have to have a very frank discussion and don't try and please everyone because if you try and please everyone, you're going to please no one. You know, so be very careful. I think it's it's I think it's something that needs to be done. I think McMaster would be probably one of the best places to do it because McMaster's got a history of being a little on the edge and a little radical. So I think it could be called the McMaster series, and it tours the country and engages uh, Canadians in a discussion that we've never had before. And hopefully that'll force politicians to think differently. And uh, hopefully it'll force physicians to think differently as well. So if we all start thinking differently, then I think we'll all benefit from it. So I'd love to visit Hamilton. You give me a call and I'll come down there. That's now, awesome. Now I'm going to be very interested in watching your first tweet. So I'm going to see how you're going to capture this in how many characters you've got. And then how your buddies and, you know start tweeting as well. This will be very interesting how the tweet world is going to handle our conversation here. We will see. Do you, I will follow you if you promise to follow me. Agreed? If I can figure out how to set that, <laughs> I will. And um, just one more closing line before we leave. I, I did a, a sort of talk, a lecture to about two, 250 community members on Ontario politics, Ontario medical politics. And my opening line or my opening slide was a, a disclosure saying that I am politically incorrect. And I actually got this sort of uh, semi-standing uh, clapping ovation for, for, for actually declaring that. So I think being po politically incorrect is probably the more uh, popular thing to do at this moment. But Thank you, uh, Louis, for actually joining us. And I will be putting this out very shortly. Just need to make sure the quality is good. And we will be in touch. Good. Jason, keep doing this. It's important to, uh, to get your points across there, buddy. Thanks very much. Take care, Louis. Have a, have a good day. You too. What the hell? Have a good life. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. <laughs>